Hi, everybody. This is Jim Cornette, pro wrestling legend, and you're listening to the Book in the Territory Unprofessional Wrestling Podcast. This is the artist formerly known as Daryl Van Horn, James Mitchell, the Sinister Minister, and I'm here to let you know I would rather slam my cock in a car door than to miss the dulcet tones of Hard Body Harper, my illegitimate son on Booking the Territory podcast. Who <laughs> messy, this is professional wrestler Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Wicker Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare, don't you dare miss Booking the Territory. Oh, yeah. This is a one-man gang. You're listening to Booking the Territory Pro Wrestling Podcast. Hello again, friends. No, I'm not going to steal this stuff. I am sitting here with the great Brian Lass. I'm going to welcome him back to Booking the Territory. For I don't know how short this will be or long it'll be, but a, but a discussion on the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, specifically the Junkyard Dog. Uh, I wasn't trying to start anything on the morning of December the 13th, 2019, but that was a Friday the 13th, so maybe uh, karma got me. But anyway, I made a post about Junkyard Dog not getting into the Observer Hall of Fame again, and I said something like uh, maybe he should have done 600 super kicks of match and did 75 false finishes and he would have gotten in and I then got blasted by a bunch of people for my thoughts um, so I brought in someone here who I know is very well qualified to have this discussion with me and of course I am going to be biased on the topic because JYD was the star of my childhood and had as memorable of a run in my personal opinion as anybody could have had uh, although it may have been a short time Brian, let me welcome you in, and let me set the stage. You did say you saw the tweet. You didn't reply to it because we're friends, and you're that's not going to just go off on me for any reason under the sun. But uh, your thoughts on the tweet and just my thoughts on Dog still not being in um, as a historian. Well, good morning, Michael. It's, uh, it is indeed morning as we're recording. I'm pretty tired, but we do this kind of early sometimes. It's been so long since I've been invited on Booking the Territory. Am I allowed to use profanity on this program? Jesus, every time you ask that, I want to spit my coffee out. <laughs> sure. You well, can curse as much as you want. Let me first say that uh, on my ballot this year, as I believe every year I've voted, I voted for the Junkyard Dog. I personally see his accomplishments as undeniable for the Hall of Fame, but we'll expand upon that in a moment. I have been recording in the midst of recording a 605 Super Podcast Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame special. And this, as well as other similar themed topics have come up in terms of guys who you just you just scratch your head. You go, how are they not in the Hall of Fame? How do you have a wrestling Hall of Fame without this person? Another way to look at it is how do you diminish their accomplishments to the point where they're not in the Hall of Fame? And I think the one thing I saw, I don't know if it was in the tweet you sent or I, th I guess it would have been that one. I don't know if there was a follow-up one. It must have been the first one where you said, I recognize Dave. It's not all Dave. There are voters. There are actual people voting for the Hall of Fame. So Dave Meltzer certainly has his thoughts and his opinions on it. But at the end of the day, Dave's tabulating votes and ballots that come from 
various people, historians, reporters, active wrestlers, former wrestlers. And with those four categories, the Junkyard Dog has not gotten entry into the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. My argument is that he should have been in the initial class. When the Hall of Fame started, Dave immediately put in, I don't know if it was like 150 or, hey, that's probably a really high number, but let's say 75 guys got in. No-brainers, like no-brainers. Sam Mushnick, no-brainer. Bill Watts, no-brainer. Like various other no-brainers. Bruno San Martino, Luthez, Buddy Rogers. I mean, the people that you think of right away and you say no-brainer. With Junkyard Dog, you know, Jim Cornette made a fantastic analogy on the Hall of Fame special that 605 will be putting out early in the week that we're recording right now. And that is, and he wasn't even talking about Junkyard Dog. I think he may have been talking about Sputnik Monroe. And the comparison was with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Earth, Wind, and Fire, the last few albums may have been stinkers. But does that disqualify them from whatever the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is bullshit as that thing is, even though their earlier work was so amazing and so clearly at a Hall of Fame level? And I think with Junkyard Dog, he had a five-year Hall of Fame run that to me is undeniable, maybe even six if you really want to think about it. But after that, he gained weight. He had substance abuse problems. He was in and out of places at various times. A lot of people remember that match with Ric Flair in 1990, which was at that time one of the worst, if not the worst, Ric Flair matches anyone had ever seen. And the thing with Flair was always people saying he could wrestle a broomstick and have a great match. Well, he couldn't with the dog in 1990. And I think there's lots of reasons why people look at the Junkyard Dog's later career and go, give me a break. This guy's not a Hall of Famer. This guy couldn't wrestle anymore. He looked pretty bad in the ring physically and in terms of what he was doing. He didn't have that explosive burst that Ricardo Coleman has spoken about in the past when he saw the Junkyard Dog as a kid in New Orleans. But from 1979... Until at least 1984, and I think you could even add 1985 into the mix, the Junkyard Dog is a Hall of Fame wrestler. It's the Junkyard Dog and Bill Watts putting Mid-South Wrestling on the shoulders of the Junkyard Dog that led to what was traditionally, for the most part, a rather ignored territory in Louisiana. You know, even when it was part of... of Leroy McGurk's bigger territory. And then when Bill Watts broke off in 1979, people didn't talk about Louisiana. Louisiana wasn't a place wrestlers wanted to go to. They went there, but you know, people picked, people wanted to go to Florida. People wanted to go to New York. People wanted to go work for Crockett. Maybe Vern because of the lighter schedule. People didn't say, Hey, I want to go to Kansas city. I want to go to Kansas city. I want to go to Louisiana, even Dallas at that period of time before the Von Erichs really exploded. Dallas wasn't that hot a place to go to. And just look at some of those cards in the years before the Freebirds got there and things changed. And Louisiana, on the back of the junkyard dog, who came in there as a heel, who had a losing streak, turned babyface against Gino Hernandez. 
And then they do the Freebird angle, and they have the biggest crowd in the history of the state until you know WrestleMania, which was people from out of state coming in. They draw the biggest house there, the Freebirds, Michael Hayes, and Junkyard Dog. I forget off the top of my head. I think Michael Hayes may have been 21. The Junkyard Dog was a completely unproven commodity in the wrestling business. And they drew whatever it was, 32,000 people into the New Orleans Superdome. And if that number is wrong, forgive me. It's early in the morning. I don't have any facts in front of me. I'm just going off the top of my head. And you watch Mid-South Wrestling and you see the pops that Junkyard Dog gets. You see that he is the star of the territory. Bill Watts, the promoter, talks about how important Junkyard Dog was and how big he was. Wrestlers who were there. I mean, ask anyone who was there. I, I have. I've asked Jim Cornette. I've asked Mr. Olympia. I've asked the Grappler. I've asked all these guys. I've asked Bill Watts. They'll tell you just how important Junkyard Dog was to Mid-South Wrestling. Would Bill Watts have been in a position to take over from Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma and Arkansas if he hadn't been able to ride that wave of the Junkyard Dog in 1979 and 1980 and 1981? I don't know. I think that's a it's an interesting thing to think about and, and discuss. But you also look at how he was thought about by other people in the wrestling business. And a star from Louisiana was getting on the covers of wrestling magazines. That I mean, it doesn't sound like a big deal, especially now if you're a younger fan, you don't realize what the magazines were. But look, look at the covers of the magazines. It was Bruno San Martino. It was Bob Backlund. It was Dusty Rhodes. It wasn't an African-American wrestler who no one had ever heard of before from New Orleans or from Louisiana. The junkyard dog became bigger than the territory for a while. We could talk about how he transcended into pop culture. You know, that famous newspaper poll where he was the most, he was the most popular athlete in New Orleans. That's, that's significant. That's major. Very. Would New Orleans have drawn the crowds they drew at the municipal auditorium without the junkyard dog? And, you know, a lot of people... And Bill Watts learned his lesson afterwards where they tried to find another African-American superstar and it didn't work. So let's go back a few years. If it's not Sylvester Ritter, the junkyard dog, if it was Tiger Conway Jr. in that position, just to throw a name out there of another African-American wrestling star, would it have worked? No. It was Junkyard Dog's interviews, which connected at a level that a lot of guys' interviews don't connect. Most guys don't connect to an audience the way the Junkyard Dog did with his interviews. Towards the end of his run in Mid-South, 83, 84, I guess maybe even 82, he started traveling, which is one of the big signs of a wrestling star from a territory. You know, Dusty Rhodes was the biggest star in Florida. Next thing you know, Dusty Rhodes is appearing on everyone's TV. Andre the Giant, obviously, but that's a different league. Junkyard Dog, within a, a year and a half, two years, goes to Houston, becomes a major star in Houston, which is a determining factor, one of them, in Paul Bosch and Peter Burkholz deciding to partner with Bill Watts. He goes to Mid-Atlantic as a traveling superstar. He goes to Florida as a traveling superstar. He goes to Memphis as a traveling superstar. Everywhere he went, he was a star. When Vince McMahon launched All-American Wrestling in the summer of 1983, and then started airing footage from other territories. One of the guys he aired footage of was Junkyard Dog. He knew he wanted him. 
he was the first guy from Mid-South Wrestling that Vince McMahon went after and raided. It wasn't Ted DiBiase. It wasn't Hacksaw Duggan. It wasn't the Midnight Express. It was the Junkyard Dog. There was a reason for that. Because that was his only hope of being able to go into Bill Watts' territory and draw against him. It didn't work out because Bill Watts was a smart promoter and knew how to fight back against Vince McMahon. But that was his only hope. And if you watch WWF TV, and this is why I said that I think 1985 has to be included in his Hall of Fame run. If you watch WWF TV, championship wrestling, let's say from 84 to 85, the junkyard dog is the second most popular guy in that company behind Hulk Hogan. He gets massive pops every single week, and he's almost on every program. He's not one of these guys that you would see one week and not see for another three weeks. He was on almost every single week. There was a reason for that. People reacted to the junkyard dog. People loved the junkyard dog. You know, from 85, let's say 86, because even, even though Terry Funk's another one of these guys that could wrestle a broomstick and have a fantastic match, even better than Flair, in my eyes. Terry Funk got great matches out of the Junkyard Dog, and a lot of people say that it's all Terry Funk. It wasn't the dog. But after that, 1987, 1988, 89, 90, and, and on, yeah, it's rough. It's not, it's not good. I think I've said it before. I think the dog changing his look was a big mistake. When all of a sudden, WrestleMania 3, the biggest wrestling show of all time, he has a mustache, no beard, a mustache and a very close crop, almost a shaved head. That wasn't a good look. And he gained weight by that period of time. He lost a lot of his charisma when he lost his fro, when he lost his beard. But if you look at 1979 to 1985, that's a Hall of Fame run. And if you say, well, that's not long enough, here's what I would say. Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama, is in the Hall of Fame for the major influence he had on wrestling that we're still feeling today, but for a two-year run. For two years. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard with J.J. Dillon as a unit are on the ballot. And they did pretty good this year. I think they did better than the dog. I don't have the voting in front of me. Now, they were a unit for, if you're counting them as a tag team, not the overall horseman. And you can't because it's not a horseman. It's, it's not the horseman on the ballot. It's Tully, Arn with J.J. They were together for a year. And then they went to the WWF with Bobby Heenan and the Brain Busters were together for another year. Fantastic tag team. Fantastic tag team. You mean to tell me for that two-year run, they're eligible and they should be thought of as being Hall of Famers, but the Junkyard Dog for a five-run where he transformed a very small territory into being a money territory? That shouldn't be? I don't, I don't think so. I think, like I said, and I think Jim Cornette had such a great analogy. A lot of rock stars we like, a lot of musicians we like, a lot of R&B stars we like, did fantastic work and then did some shitty work. I'm a big Teddy Pendergrass fan. You go listen to those early Teddy Pendergrass albums, they're, they're amazing. They're fantastic. Listen to them with your woman. That would be my suggestion. <laughs> but after his car wreck, when he was paralyzed, he put out more albums. And I know it's not a fair assessment to to equate his abilities before and after the wreck but that's not even what it's about all of a sudden there were synthesizers he didn't have his big band they changed the sound the albums aren't as good the songs aren't as good 
Does that mean Teddy Pendergrass isn't an R&B Hall of Famer? For whatever that, you know, I don't know if there's an R. I'm sure there's an R&B Hall of Famer. There must be. That he's not an R&B Hall of Famer for whatever, the five years before that? Not even counting Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. So I think with Junkyard Dog, that's the way I see it. I vote for him because he's the biggest star in the history of New Orleans, the biggest star in the history of Louisiana wrestling. He had several years. Again, if you just want to do Mid-South, 79 to 84. Biggest star in the territory by far. And then he has a year in the WWF where he's the second most popular guy to Hulk Hogan. I see that as Hall of Fame caliber. And I see that as someone deserving of being in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. I hope I didn't filibuster too much here. No, it's exactly... I mean, I wanted your opinion. You have a vote. I wanted to hear what you thought on it. You actually answered many of the things that people were telling me to, in my tweet, uh, some friends of ours, I mean, like Jim Valley, he, he flat out said, you know, he, he hasn't voted for him and he wanted reasons why. And I wasn't able to eloquently put it in a tweet, but I tried to explain, you know, his, <laughs> the amount of people that he put in the Superdome. And I tried to explain his cultural influence, how he brought, races together. I mean, we're talking about the deep south. I realize New Orleans itself is is very mixed and there's a very large African American population. So, it's one thing to do it just for New Orleans, but I, I'm throughout the territory in towns in Mississippi and other smaller towns in Louisiana and throughout the mid-south, this African American man pulled races together. It can't I don't know I said this in my Facebook group during this week. I said, look, if you weren't there to feel the force of nature, it's very hard to get folks to understand that force of nature. It's one thing to read about Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy and look at the devastation. But if you didn't sit in the middle of it and feel it and watch your houses get blown away or swamped with water, you don't understand the full grasp of it. That's kind of how I feel about the dogs run in Mid-South. Furthermore, Ricardo Coleman talked about this on the 605. Yeah, dog burnt out towards his end of his Mid-South run. And then dog left and he had that one good year with, I think, WWF. And then uh, the end was not pretty. You know, he he became a shell of himself, a very, very thin shell of himself he blew up in weight. He had major drug issues. However, that doesn't take away from the fact of what he did from 79 to 84. And then if you want to include 85. And I think historians that don't vote for him, I feel like they, one, don't understand the grasp of the force of nature that he was during that five-year run. Two, they just, they, they, they spout facts out that, can be facts about the end of his career and how he wasn't all that great and he blew up and all these things. So they hold that against them. And then I think, well, I'll just leave it at that. Those two things kind of hold them back from saying they'll vote for him. Now, at the same time, they'll acknowledge that he was great, but then he's not Hall of Fame worthy in their eyes. Um, 
I'll throw another name out there. I saw Matt Farmer responded to me. I never replied to him on Twitter. It's not personal. I just didn't reply. I, I didn't feel, I replied to Jim earlier in the day and I respect Jim Valley. I mean, he's been on the 605. He's co-hosted and, um, I've never met Matt. I've met Jim through Facebook and, and Twitter. Matt, I don't know, but Matt was like, I've never voted for him. Uh, I don't think he's Hall of Fame worthy, but you know, I'm open, change my mind. And I just feel like, and this is impersonal towards Matt. I don't want somebody to tweet Matt and say that I'm saying anything negative about him. I just no, Matt, feel like Matt, Matt knows his stuff. Right. Matt Farmer and, knows his stuff. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's my point. That's why when I say what I'm about to say, I don't want it to come off as a spin for me taking a shot at Matt asking me what he asked me. But I feel like at this point, if I have to try to convince you, I don't know if you can be convinced because you already know as a historian those significant facts. The problem is you weren't sitting in that, not that I was sitting in those buildings, but you weren't sitting in that territory watching him light it on fire and watching him transcend race and and bringing races together and, and listening to you know have me having one man gang tell me stories about this guy would walk into a building and black, white, no matter the race, age, gender, everybody was chanting, who that going to beat that dog? And it was he was in in gang, a, a large man in this industry, been there and done that, been everywhere around the world. Was like it was unreal to feel the goosebumps when they would start chanting the dog's name and, fe and getting behind him he's like those people wanted you wanted the heel dead and i just feel like uh, somebody like matt or jim who they know the facts they know about the superdome on august 2nd 1980 they understand jyd and michael hayes and they know about his run in mid-south and they but then they'll, they'll also hold the WWF and beyond against him because of the problems. I feel like they weren't there to feel the hurricane and the storm and the force of nature that JYD was from 79 through 84. And we say 83 if you want to include 84, but they weren't there to feel it. They don't understand what this man was to the region and the fact that when big stadium shows weren't necessarily a huge thing. And yeah, WrestleMania came in years later and put 70,000 in it, putting 30,000 people in the Superdome, which is a large venue in that day and time when you weren't flying people from around the world. Th That's these right. people weren't coming from England in the UK and in 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 Europe, in Japan and all these nations, or not even that, just from around the country. They weren't flying in from New York. I mean, you may have had some historians at the time or, or or people in the magazines that came but beyond that there were not people coming from all corners of the united states to come to the superdome like what the wwe did later on this was a regional territory that put thirty thousand people into the superdome i lived there i breathed it i saw it the man gave me goosebumps he was a force of nature and I and and that is what I don't know if I could ever have people like Jim or Matt who know their stuff. Jim and Matt DM me on Twitter, Facebook. We can have this discussion. I I respect you guys. So I want to make that clear. I'm not trying to be mean here or anything or or, or disparage them as, as historians. But that is the point that I don't know that guys like them get um, you 
I wasn't. I didn't even want to know if you voted for him. You did vote for him. It doesn't surprise me. Bo James yeah. told me he voted for him. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but but in a nutshell, uh, I wanted your opinion on things. And then I'll ask you one other question after what I've said. And you can respond to what I've said, but I also have one other question after you yeah. respond is this. Uh, do you think guys like Matt and Jim or anyone else that you know that doesn't vote for the dog? Um, do you think they can ever be convinced otherwise? Because in my personal feeling, I feel like there's nothing we can do or nothing I could do or you could do to convince them otherwise. But go ahead. Well, ask me that after I say a couple things um, about what you just said. Okay. Let's let's take the Superdome out of the equation. Let's say it never happened. The junkyard dog was the biggest draw in New Orleans, what, every two weeks for five years. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Baton Rouge. And again, these aren't glamorous towns. I'm not talking about St. Louis and New York and Philadelphia. However, look at how many people on a regular basis were coming to wrestling to see the junkyard dog. The junkyard dog is the reason the Ted DiBiase heel turn worked. It's the reason the Mr. Olympia heel turn worked because the dog was the central figure in Mid-South wrestling. I think if you ask people who were there, they'll tell you he's a Hall of Famer. I also think, and this is where the later portion of his career hurts him, people ignore the fact that he wasn't, he wasn't always a fat, slow wrestler. Right. If you watch the Junkyard Dog in 82, for instance, he can move. He's got the fans behind him. Explosive bursts of energy that get the fans going. Yes. He's not an awful worker. Go watch the stuff with him in Houston, Texas, where he instantly got over as the biggest star in that town. And you could see a guy who isn't the awful worker that everyone paints him as being. Later in his career, he sucked in the ring. He was awful in the ring. But that wasn't always the case. And I think a lot of people treat it like, oh, yeah, Bill Watts had to use smoke and mirrors to hide how bad he was in the ring. It wasn't always like that. That's and so the, far from the truth. I'm glad you said that. That is and a the, fallacy, and it is not true. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, look, the, the great thing about Junkyard Dog, as opposed to some of the other guys I've talked about on the Hall of Fame special, like uh, Sputnik Monroe, for instance. To use him again. One of the great things about the Junkyard Dog is that there is a lot of footage. We do have a lot that we can watch and see. And I think a lot of people sometimes accept the myth of him being the fat, lazy, slow, junk food dog, as he was labeled in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter in the late 1980s. And they don't look past that to see who he was that got him to that point. How he handled his fame and his money, that's another story. That, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. But he had a five-year run at a minimum that was Hall of Fame level. He wasn't an awful wrestler. He was a fantastic promo, top-tier promo. Top-tier! And I think that alone sometimes should be worth inclusion in the Hall of Fame. The best promos in wrestling history... I think that's something to say. There's something to be said for that, I should say. It's early. Excuse me if I uh, misspeak. But I think – Go ask me your question again, just so I, I understand the wording of it again. Well, my thing was guys like 
Jim or or Bruce Mitchell, I think he even responded. He you know he doesn't vote for him or or Matt. Guys like that, and I, and I don't mean to lump so many guys together because they may have their own reasons. Can they be convinced otherwise? Because I feel like their mind is made up, and I'm wondering if that's the issue. If it, if you have a bunch of people who have their minds made up, and nothing we say because they're so smart and intelligent on these on these historical facts, if their minds can't be changed, like they've already they're they're set in their ways uh, with it, and that's not a negative. I'm just pointing out a fact that I. I almost feel that way. Like they feel like, nope, he's not a Hall of Famer. And guys like that who have a vote can't be convinced otherwise. I don't know. I mean, sometimes people put their feet in the ground and say this person isn't a Hall of Famer. I did that for years with Akira Tawi. And then I ended up voting for him last year because I thought about it. I analyzed it. And I said, yeah, you know what? He should be in here too. Mm -hmm. And I think with the junkyard dog, there will be some people that will refuse to see him for what he really was. I think maybe in some ways, some guys, and, and I'm not speaking specifically about Matt or Jim or Bruce here, but some voters and maybe, maybe them, I don't know. If you actually show some analytics, if you actually show the number of fans that came to see the dog on a regular recurring basis for years at a clip I think that's something that if you take that and you compare that to someone else, how do you deny it? How do you deny what the dog did in Louisiana regularly returning to the same towns and getting people to come out for years? How do you compare that? How does that compare to dusty roads in Florida returning to Tampa or returning to Orlando or returning to, I don't know how many times he worked Orlando, but returning to uh, Miami, returning to the big towns in that territory each and every week i think also and this is just my thing i personally think that while wrestling is a worldwide sport and while the observer uh, hall of fame is supposed to um is supposed to weigh on a worldwide basis i think during the territory era and this is the end of it i mean the end of it that you have to look at who did what where. Bob Geigel and Bob Brown were on top in Kansas City for years. You know, how many people did they draw? This isn't to put down the Kansas City promotion, but let's let's talk numbers. How many people did re did they really draw? How many people really came back to see them week after week? They're not Hall of Famers. I don't and I don't think they will be. The junkyard dog, how many people came how many people came to see him each and every time he was in New Orleans. They ran three different arenas in New Orleans. How many people came to see him each and every week in the municipal? How many people went to the Superdome just to see the dog? And again, you pointed out one of, I think, the big facts. There weren't traveling fans. You didn't have fans coming down from Oklahoma to go to the Superdome. Those were local fans seeing a big event with raised ticket prices. I think that if you weigh his accomplishments in Mid-South against other accomplishments that other wrestlers had in similar territories, it's, it's undeniable. It's undeniable that based on his promo, based on his drawing power, based on him transcending professional wrestling into popular culture. And we can even go beyond that. I mean, look, he was one of the first guys Vince McMahon merchandised. When I was a kid, before I was a wrestling fan, 
I knew who the junkyard dog was from Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling. I had the junkyard dog LJN figure. He was in my eyes as a kid who didn't watch wrestling. One of the biggest stars in wrestling. I don't know if you really want to equate that or, 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 or take that into account because in a lot of ways, it's a silly argument. This is what I thought when I didn't know anything. But when I became a wrestling fan, that's the way I thought of the junkyard dog until, you know, I, I finally saw him, I think in 1990, when he came back to WCW, that was the first time I had seen him like since I was a kid on Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling or on the WrestleMania three video cassette I had. But I think that it's, to me, it's undeniable to me. I don't even, there are certain guys. I mean, there's another discussion from the, uh, hall of fame special on six Oh five. There are certain guys that I don't think should be on the ballot because I think they're oversights from that, from that first class. I think Roy Welch and Morris Siegel and wild bull Curry are oversights that Dave left off that first class, but shouldn't have, they should have been in there. You can't have Paul Bosch in a hall of fame for promoting Houston, Texas for 20 years. And not have Morris Siegel, who promoted it for almost 50. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And he also had the Houston booking office, which was the most powerful booking office in the state of Texas. And then after he died, Fritz von Erich said, no, we're not doing this anymore. And it became the Dallas booking office. So I think there were oversights. There were historical oversights from that first class. And maybe because the dog was still alive and he was still making appearances that were sad or disappointing that it was easy to say, well, give me a break. He's not a hall of famer. Look at him. Just look at him. But when you really look at his body of work and his accomplishments and what he meant, he is a clear cut hall of famer. He should have been in the first class of the hall of fame. And I think most historians who vote at least the historians I've spoken to are willing to change the way they vote or vote for someone they typically haven't if data is presented in front of them or a good argument is presented for a candidate. And I certainly hope people take a stronger look at who the junkyard dog was, what he meant in Mid-South Wrestling, and what he meant overall to professional wrestling from 1979 to 1985. And go find all of the stars from Louisiana who are on the covers of national wrestling publications before the junkyard dog. They don't exist. They don't exist. And one of the reasons you put someone on the cover of a magazine is if they move magazines. I, I just think the junkyard dog is an undeniable star. And a icon in professional wrestling and an icon, certainly in New Orleans. And I vote for him and I certainly think everyone else should. And on that note, I think we've covered everything I wanted to discuss today, Brian. So I appreciate it. And I wholeheartedly degree, uh, degree, agree with all of your sentiments that you express right there. I, I, I wanted to do this in hopes that uh, obviously, I probably have some bias when I think that the dog should get in, but I, I wanted to do this to, you know, maybe answer, give my point of view on it and then hear yours 
uh, that's not contained in a small little Twitter box. And uh, that way, you know, if anybody wants to know my thoughts yeah. on it, they could just listen to this and they can listen to you and your thoughts. Now, you're going to do, like you said, a, a a whole show or you've already done a whole show on it, maybe. And uh, it'll be released soon. I'm not sure when this will come out. So but uh, if this comes out after Brian's, go listen to Brian's whole show on this. But I wanted to at least have a discussion about JYD and my thoughts on um, him still not being in there. Uh, Twitter can can things can come off a little jaded sometimes. And I wasn't trying to be snarky or smart. I just was making a point. Can't believe he's not in. I feel like it's stupidity. But but that's uh, but but you brought up a great point. Is it the work rate Hall of Fame? Whatever work rate is, and you know it's the eye of the beholder, or is it the Hall of Fame of people who were iconic wrestling stars, or is it the Hall of Fame of people who were drawing cards? There's lots of different ways to look at it. Yeah. But using the Young Bucks as an example, the Young Bucks are a really important act to look at from a historical point of view. And I think in years to come, we'll be able to seriously evaluate what they've done here. But they've never been able to draw what the Junkyard Dog drew anywhere. Which, and that was my point about the 600 super kicks and i actually like the bucks so i don't i was and i think don't people don't understand that i have nothing against matt and nick i think i think what they've actually done is tremendous like to 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 make the name for themselves that they've made on an indie on an indie level prior to now is pretty amazing in 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 a certain way because there used to be a time when the territories died and then all we had was indies and a couple of big companies and all we had was one big company with WWE. That was like the only way at a time to make a name for yourself. They found a way to make a name for themselves without being on one of those big companies. So like to your point from a historical context, I don't think you can ignore them now at the same time for different reasons. I don't think you can ignore JYD's candidacy and him deserving to be in there. And that's kind of my point. It's like if if I if you can't see that, it's because of the points I've already made. You didn't live it. You didn't breathe it. You don't understand the significance of the stadium show, the big football stadium, having 30,000 people in there back when people weren't traveling from all around, not only the United States, but around the world. So, um, Brian, I look forward to listening to your f- full show on the different candidates. I have no clue what you, you guys even talked about. I don't even know who's going to be on it, but uh, do you want to give some a, info it, on it now? It, yeah, we do a roundtable discussion, several roundtable discussions with voters, with actual voters for the Hall of Fame, and we discuss really anything Hall of Fame related, their ballots, who got in, who didn't get in, thoughts on the future of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. It's available at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcast. And to an earlier point you made, Mike, Twitter is great for making a statement. It's mm-hmm. really hard to have an intelligent debate. It's almost impossible to have an intelligent debate with someone on Twitter. Agreed. And, you know, that that's it's a hard place to have any intelligence at all, actually. <laughs> but uh, you can't really have a good back and forth. And I think it's a good discussion. And I think if some of these guys think that he's clear, clearly not a Hall of Famer, you should talk to them, too. I mean, you should get every point of view on this. So, Jim, Matt. Bruce Mitchell, anybody out there who doesn't vote for him, uh, anytime, shoot me a message. I'll get you on and we can have the debate and have a discussion about it. 
Uh, maybe not so much as a debate, but a discussion. A uh, debate sounds, I don't know. People get into debates now and they turn wicked. So anyway, um, Brian, I appreciate this, man. Anything you want to plug before we uh, shut this one down? Uh, boy, I'm tired now. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I was tired before. Now I'm really exhausted. 605pod.com, the 605 Super Podcast. Also available wherever you find your favorite podcast. And check out all of the shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow Arcadian Vanguard on Twitter, at Super Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. And of course, me and Mike, every week we do the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review, which comes out every Monday or Tuesday. You know what? I'm not even sure. But check it out, midsouthpod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Thanks for having me on again, though, Mike. It's uh, it's nice to have my annual visit here. You're so early, so early in the morning. Jesus. I actually think we did something earlier this year. I think I, I think you were on. We talked about ECW or something else. Obviously, it made a, it made a great impression on I you. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! No it's always, problem. It's man. always fun and it's always a pleasure, and I really, uh, I appreciate what you guys do on booking the territory. So thanks for having. Me. I'm honored to be invited back. No, no worries, man. I, I always love having you on, and uh, thank you again. So for Brian and Mike, and this special edition of Booking the Territory, the Unprofessional Wrestling Podcast. Brian, do you mind doing your tally ho thing or whatever you usually do? Oh boy, my throat's fucked. But hold oh, on. Come on, no I'm kidding. All right. I'm glad I'm allowed to use profanity. Uh, hold on. <laughs> Tell you!